Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everybody, it's Neil from The Vergecast. This week on the interview episode, we have Jeff Glick, who's the CEO of Foursquare. Now, you may remember Foursquare 10 years ago, it launched at South by Southwest. It was an app to check into locations with your friends, become the mayor of the airport coffee shop. It's a really different company now. They still run an app called Swarm, lets you check in, but it is a location data services provider. It provides the location services to Snapchat, to Twitter, to everyone that you can think of that needs to know where you are. And right now, that is a really dicey kind of company to run because of all of the privacy conversations we've been having. But Foursquare, I think, is doing it right. And Jeff is a really interesting guy who's really focused on providing the services and the value that you can get from location while still protecting privacy. And we really got into it about the trade-offs between everything technology and phones can do with your location and all of the privacy problems that could cause. It was a great conversation. I love talking to people who are, who are fierce about their values. Check this out. It's Jeff Glick, CEO of Foursquare. Okay, we're here with Jeff Glick, the CEO of Foursquare. How are you, sir? Hello, great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So this is like an interesting time to talk to a man who runs a company that does like location services for other sure. big companies and like helps the ad industry go. So I want to talk about that. But let's start with Foursquare. So Foursquare famously started as the check-in app. It was like a hit of like the early sort of Web 2.0. Ten years ago, South by. Yeah. And now it's a radically kind of different company. And you've split out Swarm, which is sort of the still the check-in product. But your business has turned into something really awesome. So just walk me through the basics for people who haven't been following the journey. So for people who don't know how we've evolved from 2009 and checking in at Mayors, now the, now the company is really a trusted independent location platform. And to explain that, if you type the name of the Verge offices into Uber, they're using Foursquare. If you get a geofilter on Snapchat, that's using our data and technology. If you get tapped on the shoulder because you're traveling in Spain and a friend recommended the tapas place around the corner on TripAdvisor, that's our technology being used by TripAdvisor. If you tag a tweet on Twitter, that's Foursquare technology at work. And if you get an augmented reality layer over your uh, photos and your camera on any Samsung device, that's Foursquare's API and developer tools at work. So we, we help about 150,000 registered developers understand the context of the real world and connect the digital and the physical world to make user experiences better. And 
where people go in the real world, which is 90% of the economy still. And I would argue a lot of <laughs> a lot of where we should be spending our time instead of endlessly scrolling screens yeah. is discovering amazing places around us and, and real people and real friends. So that's what we're about. And so the company's 99% what they call a B2B company. In mm -hmm. other words, we provide technology and services to other enterprises and help them get better. I just want to pull that apart. So I am using Twitter, which is a mistake I make every day, but I'm, I'm on it. I'm doing it. It's addictive. Uh, I'm, I'm working for Jack for free instead of working for the Verge for money. Um, and I tag a location, the Twitter app, what says here, here's my GPS coordinates, Foursquare, tell me where I am. That's right. So an API is a, is a call, basically. Yeah. And so the Twitter app will say, here's the Wi-Fi scans I see, and we have a proprietary map of all the Wi-Fi scans in 100 million places and how they interact in the world, GPS, time of day. And we will return back a list to the Twitter user that's saying, you know, maybe you're at Francis Tavern, mm -hmm. uh, down, which is downstairs here, or maybe you're at the Vox office or like, but, but we 80 or 90% of the time, the very first thing we return is right. The yeah. users and users train us. If you're at the juice generation and not at the Starbucks, which is only a few feet away, um, we're constantly learning um, which is the right answer because billions, over 13 billion times, people have said, "Hey, I'm here," or "or I'm I'm actually at the, you know, the Gap store next door." And so we're constantly learning the sort of digital fingerprint of 105 million businesses in almost 200 countries and with this community and sort of crowdsourced. And so we make it better and easier to tag a tweet, but we do lots of other things with that technology. Right. That's the simplest. I think the Snapchat, right, it's like what are the available filters here and you're helping them determine where they are. Yeah. So they might want to have a filter for, you know, Coupa Cafe in Palo Alto and recognizing that the phone just took a snap inside Coupa Cafe and not at the wine bar down the street, That that is when we would trigger or help them understand like, hey, the Coupa Cafe overlay mm -hmm. Uh, or filter <laughs> on Snap is is the, now's the time to offer that, and so we just try to make experiences better. Um, you know, we we're even getting into better romantic pairings. We've worked with Tinder on their Tinder Places project, uh, which is live in a bunch of countries and cities. It's still in kind of beta, but basic idea is a user can opt in to be paired with people who love the same places that they love. So you know. Maybe, hey, Jennifer, you should meet this person who also lives in Brooklyn and loves the same cold brew coffee spot and goes to the same dog park all the time. You know, you have something in common. And so we found it so far with Tinder that that's creating better matches in the sense of people more likely to accept a swipe. Wow. Okay. So there's like three or four things I want to get into. Obviously, I want to talk about being sort of this like mapping company because yeah. we talk about that a lot. We t spend a lot of time on the broadcast, I'll be honest with you. Probably too much time talking about competition and antitrust and behemoths. And you're obviously in a market that is pretty concentrated. So there's that. I definitely want to talk to you about privacy, which is sure. something that you have written about. But let me start with something. I think we have a lot of people who listen to our show who want to build companies, who are building companies, who are part of companies that are experiencing change. You just described a huge pivot from what Foursquare was, which sure. was a big consumer company, which is a hit with consumers, to now an infrastructure provider. How did you guys make that pivot? So I joined the company almost five years ago, initially as COO. I had been a CMO and a COO and a, and a founder of a company and a CEO of a Palo Alto Mountain View company. And I met Ben Horowitz uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, who's the biggest investor. And, and he said, oh, you're thinking of moving back to New York from the Silicon Valley. Uh, you should meet Dennis Crowley. That's our, Foursquare is our biggest 
investment and they have this really powerful crowdsource map of the world and they're trying to figure out how, is this, how do we make this a sustainable business because the consumer business wasn't growing at the same pace post Instagram or Snap that the early years had. And so when I arrived and I had a conversation with Dennis Crowley, who is our chairman and this visionary founder, I'm very passionate. And I remember asking the question, wait, Dennis, you guys have built technology that can recognize when the phone in your pocket or your purse goes in or out of 105 million places in the world. And all we're doing is guiding people to a better burrito. <laughs> um, we, you know, this is big. This is yeah. how to connect the digital world and the physical world, how to uh, tap people on the shoulder and understand the context, you know, how to how to distinguish that it's about to rain and you're in your office at 2 p.m., who cares? Or it's going to rain in 10 minutes and you're at Yankee Stadium, you better order an Uber now. Uh, and so that kind of context, um, what kinds of things you like, how to personalize technology and how to understand how digital media affects offline behavior, that is a powerful platform. And so uh, the the evolution, because we're, we're still a location company. It's not like yeah. Slack where they set out to make a game and it and they built the internal communication tool that <laughs> obviously now is going to IPO. We're still a location company. We still, from the beginning, 10 years ago, talked about being the location layer of the internet. But obviously, we're a B2B company instead of a consumer company primarily, although we still have millions and millions of consumer users of our beloved consumer apps. And so, you know, we started out um, and I, I said, just give me a couple people. I was COO. And we're going to go to our 70,000 developers using the tools for free. And we're going to say above a certain level, the top 1% of you are going to pay. And these were Fortune 500 companies calling mm -hmm. our data centers billions of times a year. <laughs> and we were losing money and we had no revenue. And I remember saying, you know, people will actually pay for something they're using billions of times a year um, and cost real money to develop and host. Uh, and I remember the internal conversation was like, well, but if we charge them, they might not continue using it. Well, what do you got to lose? They're not paying anything. Uh, and so and we went to all of our top, top developers and we started signing commercial agreements. And, and most of them said, uh, I was wondering when you'd get around to charging us. <laughs> of course we'll pay. Uh, we love it. It's the best, uh, you know. Well, there's, like a, there's another side of that too, which is if they start paying you, you have to promise them that you'll be around. And at some point, right. to continue growing for any company, you have to. your vendors have to be there for you. And, it, you know, we were spending millions of dollars mapping the world and hosting billions and billions of queries. And so you're right. They want enterprise service level agreements. They want resiliency and they want uptime guarantees and, and anything that an enterprise software company is going to provide its clients. And so, yes, we needed to be a sustainable business. Uh, and so, you know, in the first year, quickly these B2B services became 70% of the company. And that's when Dennis came to me and said, it was Dennis's idea. I was not expecting it. And he said, you know, we're really, this is going to be our future. That's a classic sort of Silicon Valley success story, right? We built a consumer app. We got a lot of data. We didn't know what to do with it. We figured out there was a market for this data. Now we're selling the data. You see that all over the place. There's, I think, a louder critique of that, which I have made, which others have made. Sure. I just interviewed a woman named Shoshana Zuboff. She wrote a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. She's putting a name on that concept. Do you think your, the consumers who use your consumer app needed to know that you know we're we're contributing all of this data about where our phones go, about what we are doing here, about these place names even, and that's going to turn into a huge monetized 
asset for some company that's going to continue to sort of collect data from us. Do you see that shifting? Like, do you think you could have made this kind of big change in what Foursquare is today? Or did you need kind of that space of no one really knows how this is going to work yet? I think we set out to solve a problem, which is where am I right now? Yeah. Um, and what is the what is the nature of the place? Is it a vegan spot? Is it a steak and potato spot? And there was no available tech to do that 10 years ago when Dennis started. So he, he had to build it. He had to build this sort of recognition of 100 million places. So to answer your question, I absolutely believe Foursquare has been thinking about this a long time because we started as a consumer app. And so trust and yeah. user participation was essential. Uh, and we still believe that data is a privilege. And so everything we do always starts with the question, how is this providing an informed choice to the user? The user's in control. That's the first test. Second, is it adding value for the user? You shouldn't be collecting any information that doesn't relate to the use case you've, you're providing that the user has chosen. If a user is opting in because they want to be paired with people who love the favorite spots that they go to better on in dating or because they want to get weather alerts that are contextually smart when you're in a park versus inside a tall building or a thousand other use cases we could yeah. talk about. The user is in control and, and you should only be asking for information that is related to the service the user is opting in. And I would point out that for the apps that we power, remember the vast majority of our understanding of the world and the people moving through it is through our network of developers. You know, we generally see 50 to 70% of people opt in to get these yeah. contextual pings uh, when they're near a place to save money or an interesting place. And the other folks choose not to, and there is zero information ever collected if you don't choose to opt in. And then you don't get the benefit. You don't get the tap on the shoulder like, mm -hmm. hey, uh, you're a TouchTunes user and you know you love Rihanna and you're at a bar where you can control the music. So you get a ping on your phone, get the party started. This this bar, Rihanna is the number one artist. So that kind of thing. So so the first test is informed consent. We can talk more about that. that. And the standards are growing for yeah. what that is and how, how plain and clear that language is as opposed to these you know, long-term privacy policies. Second is limiting information elegantly to just the minimal information you need to provide this special service the user is asking you to provide. And thirdly, users need to remain in control. So they need the right to be forgotten globally. We should have that that in the U.S. like it does in Europe. We support it yeah. in the U.S. and we, we execute now. We have right to be forgotten, right to be Right to portability globally, even though it's not the law here. We we just believe this is on Foursquare. This is on Foursquare, and so those are the three core tests. I think informed consent and informed is important. Second is when you're talking about very sensitive thing like location data, that it be limited to providing a useful service. A flashlight app shouldn't be asking you for yeah. your location all the time. And then thirdly, you know, users need con continued control. I mean, in each of those, we could dig into, and I, I actually advocate for a higher standard that we call, and I've written about this, this Hippocratic Oath, and we've been working with um, tech ethicists to think about how the industry has to evolve and lift its standards. So David Ryan Polger has this uh, concept of the Hippocratic Oath for data science, and we advocate that, which is do no harm. Are you using information that a user has entrusted you to help that user, or are you using that information to disadvantage that user or deny access to something in ways that would not be good for the user? And we think every company should be forced to ask that test, kind of like a fiduciary duty for a yeah. broker. And so I think those are the four core principles that we try to think about. But look, the industry hasn't been perfect. We've tried to set the highest bar, and the standards are evolving. We are in favor of a national 
privacy standard in the U.S. And we can talk more about what that should look like because we think that in a world where the best practices of trust are followed, the good players like us will, will yeah. end up in a good position. Hang on one second. We're going to do an ad. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. All right, we're back with Jeff Glick, CEO of Foursquare. We could do all day and all night on what the privacy policies should look like. But yeah. I think we all know it, at some level they should just be simpler, right? And you should really know what you're reading. I think the idea that you should be able to push a button and take all your data away and go home. Exactly. It's pretty simple. Exactly. When you get to the government should mandate these things, I think it's it a lot trickier. So how do you see that regulation shaking out? Because that, that move is coming, right? I mean, I talk to politicians. I talk to regulators. Right. I talk to other CEOs. They're a little bit less happy about it than you are maybe. But everyone sees the, the momentum. It needs to happen. What do you think it should look like? I've talked about those four principles just now that I think should be embedded. But, but how would you codify it? I think that's the question. It's very easy for you and me to sit here and say, I should be able to put the button, delete my data from Foursquare, and walk away. It is much harder to write a law that compels Google to build that product. Well, look – GDPR in Europe is something that people have adapted to. Now, it's not necessarily clear all the time what exactly, how exactly the GDPR regulations mm -hmm. will break out because the French are interpreting it a little different maybe than, than other countries. And it's early. I, I, my analogy is to self-driving cars. Yeah. So human beings are actually pretty bad at driving. <laughs> and over a million people are killed and tens of millions are badly injured every year because human beings are bad at driving. We go nuts, rightly, when one person is killed by a self-driving car because the norms are being built and we need to have the right legal frameworks and the right ethical standards for this. But I think if you just throw out self-driving cars at the first mistake, you are actually condemning the human race to millions and millions of people being killed and maimed every year. How do we not throw out the baby with the bathwater? How do you establish norms for what? self-driving software should, should decide to do when it has to choose between two accidents yeah. that are going to happen and things like that. We have to create those standards. Same thing with location. We, we believe context is really important to making AI and AR work and location-based services 
I mean, remember, I remember, you know, learning to drive at age 16 and there wasn't Google Maps. And if you made a wrong turn, <laughs> you were in big trouble. Like you had to pull over and get out a paper map and flip 15 pages, right? Now we take it for granted that location-based services will just reroute you, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, avoid the traffic. So I think, you know, for urban urban planning and logistics and personalization of content, all these things, this is good stuff, but it needs to follow these legal principles. Now, the California law, we're actually big supporters of. The one danger of writing the legislation poorly is not just stifling good innovation Mm -hmm. with the bad, but it's also the thing you alluded to earlier. We see ourselves as an independent platform for 150,000 other companies to invent the future. Very much our customers come to us because they don't want to be dependent on the big walled gardens. They don't want to depend on Uber and Samsung don't want to be 100% beholden to Google Maps to build their future. And and all of our customers are like that, Twitter and Tencent and Alibaba and all of them. And, And so there's a danger if you write the legislation badly that the only companies that survive are actually these giant oligopoly companies that have armies of lawyers. I mean, this is the critique of GDPR, right? The compliance costs are too high. Only the big companies can pay them. They're going to be very happy about the law because they know it's going to reduce competition and they'll take over. I saw this in the uh, – I started as working for a guy named Michael Porter mm-hmm. uh, who wrote Competitive Advantage. And we saw this in the gas station industry. I know this is a funny analogy <laughs> for your listeners. But what happened is at first, like when pollution control technology came out and, you know, in, in most states now, you have to have those things that suction up the gas – fumes when you're filling up your car. Well, that's really expensive technology for a service station to install. I mean, it's like a million dollars a service station or more. And the big companies, the Exxons, and at first were like, don't regulate us. This is ridiculous. And then they realized, hey, we can afford this. We're the richest company in the world. (laughs) All those independent gas sellers who undercut us in price, they're going to go out of business, which is exactly what happened. So then the big companies realized, oh, I like this regulation. It's going to stifle competition. And that, I think, is... A little bit on the minds of these of Google and Facebook, they realize that if the legislation is shaped uh, in such a way that it puts all their competitors out of business, that they'll end up in a good place. And so it's it's just going to be a real, real awful tax, and it's going to put a lot of startups out of business, even though they're they may be right. They just can't afford the legal costs, and so that is a real danger because Google and Facebook have armies of lawyers, and they'll be fine. So I think it's really important that we think about the competitive dynamic as we write this legislation, and that it gets what consumers want but it isn't overly burdensome. And you don't want to have to click 800 times yeah. just to opt into a service, right? It should be super transparent. It should be a few sentences up front, not in a 200-page privacy policy. What, what are you signing up for? And what are you going to get? And and how might the information be shared? You brought up the flashlight app. Yeah. And I think that one's pretty clear, right? Like the flashlights app, like I need to know where you are. You should probably say no. Why? Why? But right. weather apps are massive sort of problem in the industry. There are lots of weather apps to take your location because they need to tell you what the weather is and then they just sell it on the back end all over the place. How do you stop that from happening? How do you stop how do you tell the consumer actually this thing is going to keep a real-time record of your location? How do you stop Verizon from using a third-party data broker who then is going to happily sell your location? Like there was that great motherboard report. So, I think the the lawsuit in the weather company case in LA, if you really dig into it, it's that the disclosure in Europe on the weather company app 
is very clear. Like you're going to get alerts, and these aren't just a storm is coming to where you are. That's also it can be things like pollen alerts where you are, and it can be um, pollution alerts where you yeah. are, and lots more things that actually are really valuable, and they and and they need to be dynamic to the neighborhood level and your your specific location. And there's value to the user. So. But in Europe, it's very clear you're sharing location and it will be used under our privacy policy to create personalized ads across the internet and share with partners. And you can read our privacy policy for all the protections we put in place. And then in America, it's just read our privacy policy, <laughs> click here. And, and that is where the industry needs to get better. Yeah. And we've we've been upgrading and advising all of our, our apps to sort of put very plain language up front. But I, I actually think it's legit if you were providing a location-based service to learn about that, hey, this is a fast food frequenter, and this other device is shopping for a car right now, and this other device is a fitness junkie and is always yeah. at parks and, and CrossFits and, and or yoga studios and things. So I, I think it's legit to have an industry that brings more personalized content and offers and ads, and, and we can discuss that. I actually think it's, it's good for the consumer. Um, but it has to be regulated. It has to have standards, and the user has to know what they're they're doing and, and getting in control. The motherboard article is a totally different yeah, yeah. thing. Please. Just I just want to it's for the listener who isn't familiar. Motherboard had a great piece where they basically the author paid I don't know like a bail bondsman some money to track a phone number and return a real time map of his location that had been sourced through a network of shady third parties directly from Verizon. So not all location tech or companies yeah. are created equal. We don't do anything like oh, that. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, but how do you write a law that stops that? Well, that's that's actually pretty easy. I, I don't think that regulated common carriers, basically, yeah. and, and basically it's a basic fact of life that your phone needs to be connected to the network. <laughs> um, and so... And so really without a special opt-in, just because your phone was on the network, they were collecting very coarse cell tower triangulation location data. It's yeah. actually not that good data, yeah. but that's aside the point. It's it's rough location. And by the way, that's stored, um, you know, the NSA is collecting <laughs> all, uh, you know, metadata on all your calls and and the government privacy yeah. is topic is just as big as uh, what Facebook is collecting, I think. And we need to talk about that, too, and net neutrality and stuff like that. But but you can just say you cannot sell a phone number's real-time location, certainly not to a shady network of, <laughs> of resell. I mean, we just don't do anything like that. Yeah. We never would. And, the and there's no just consumer, be in the, and there's value, no consumer value or opt-in. Just because your phone's connected to the network, just because you turned on your phone, you consented. But that's not how consent should work. Like I said, when we yeah. do consent, it's like, hey, do you want to participate in Tinder places? And, you know, 50 or 60 people say, yeah, I'd love to be paired with people who, who are like me and go to the same spots because where you go says a lot about who you are. And, you know, 40 to 50 percent say, no, I don't want to participate. The user's really in control because when, you know, it's 50, 60, 70 percent choosing yes and 30, 40 percent choosing no, the user's making an informed choice, I would argue. It's the stuff that's that's just like – buried on page 400 of the Apple Terms of Service, that when you turn on your phone, that's not opt-in. That's yeah. not consumer control. And so the telcos just shouldn't be in that business. And you just, I mean, the telco regulations are thousands of pages. It's they very can't. easy to They can't to help get that themselves. Up. They all want to be in that business. But you collect a lot of data. So do you ever think you're working at cross incentives? Like, are you working against your own self-interest economically to not sell some of this stuff? I have turned down time and again million dollar offers to sell data that that was against our sense of ethics and I turn it down in a millisecond yeah. and people have offered millions of dollars and you know nothing is worth 
violating the trust because this is a business that depends on trust. And so, I mean, my, my, it's not that that people don't approach us. It's just <laughs> that we say no. One of the things in the New York Times article, which we didn't really dig into uh, about location, is that in theory, if you have a consistent identifier and you that consistent identifier over specific timestamps goes to lots of different places, you could in theory re-identify that anonymized individual because you know where they work and they live and they were at a certain place. It's actually hard to do at scale. The, the article made it sound easy. Yeah. It's actually really hard because you live in an apartment building and you go to this 100-story building and good luck deciphering you know, <laughs> who's who. But we think a lot about that. And so you know, when we worked with institutional investors who wanted to understand, you know, is Chipotle affected by the E. coli standard? And so, you know, we blurred the data sets so that you could never connect a person across visits. We might say, you know, this month there were so many visits at a Chipotle and last month there were so many visits, but you can't see the trails of individuals. So you can't re-identify the data. That would be an example of putting a lot of thought into how to ensure privacy because what, what those stock pickers want, they don't care about, you know, Zach's uh, trail. They want to know, are more people going to McDonald's after they announced all day breakfast than the week before? Yeah. And and so that's that's the kind of, and that's, I think, a legitimate market research question. And we can help, but we do it in such a way that you can't get the identities. And, and we've been asked for that, and we just don't participate in that because we just think that there's too much upside to risk this. We, we're playing for the next 20 years, and there's so much opportunity here in ways that can be totally privacy friendly um, and user controlled, that we're not going to risk that for you know someone offering us a million dollars for raw location data. We just won't participate in that. The real danger is that all this innovation that we believe in and contextual awareness, what we call contextual computing, that that could all be risked if some creepy company does creepy things and and we get really bad legislation instead of smart legislation. And so that's not that's not worth it. And we'd love to see um, unethical behavior weeded out of the market because I think that's what the consumers will need to believe in the, this future. And so no, it's not worth. I've never I've never had a board member uh, uh, push us to violate our ethics principles. And and by the way, you know, employees at all of these companies are a great check. Because employees are, I mean, I'm a dad of three kids, and um, I care about what kind of world we're building <laughs> for my kids. And and our employees, you know, look at what you know the the backlash that Google experienced when they started mm-hmm. building the Chinese uh, censored search engine. I mean, employees are um, vocal advocates because they want to. These are talented people, and they want to be working on stuff they feel good about. So that's another real um, check, I, I think, at, at top tier companies is that the employees um, and and I think you know, are joining companies that have a real sense of values and principles and a mission, they are the first line of defense in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I think the problem is there are lots of companies that are quite a bit shadier. I think that's the real the real thing that needs the regulation needs to address. I, I couldn't agree more. So I want to talk about competition because you brought up that the oath again. And I, I want to end with like what Foursquare is doing. Yeah. You run a company, you're articulating some very clear values here. You're in a big, messy market. There are big telcos that maybe have fewer values or less well-articulated values. There is a Google in this world that sure. runs a mapping business. There is Absolutely. an Apple in this world that runs a mapping business. How does Foursquare continue to compete as an independent with values that keep you from making all of the money that you could p- potentially make? Like, What does that ramp for you continue to look like? 
Well, I think there's room for a scaled, independent location platform that is serving the independent innovators of the world. You know, our customers, whether it's Garmin or Apple as a customer or Twitter or Uber or Microsoft, Snapchat or Line or, you know, companies around the world that don't want to be beholden in their innovation futures, as well as, you know, kids in a dorm room in Amsterdam who want to start up a company. Those are our customers, and we're devoted to this independent community, and we think that an alternative to Google Maps should exist for the future of innovation, because otherwise you wake up, you know, companies that have, if you're HTC and you signed up for Android, and all of a sudden you're fully commoditized and you're out of business (laughs) because you signed up for the Google worldview and the terms keep changing, and, you know, it's, it's a Google world you live in. And that's why Uber wanted to start migrating off Google Maps, and they came to us, and we're helping them do that. And so, you know, there is value in that independent. And we have found a sizable business. We're nothing like the size of Google, <laughs> and we're not yet profitable, but we're growing fast, and we're going to get profitable um, at this rate. And and But it takes a lot of R&D to build a map of the world and keep yeah. it fresh so that the Ubers and the Samsungs and the Twitters rely on us nightly and Apple and others. And so, you know, it takes a lot of investment. And so I think there's a room for an independent player. There's demand for it. We're seeing that. But that's how we compete because our clients don't want to be at the behold, sort of beholden to Facebook and Google forever. Do you think that you'll ever build another, like, a straight consumer map app? So we we have innovated a bunch with uh, Swarm, which is a wonderful yeah. way to log all your, you know, travels through the world for yourself. It's really for yourself. And, um, and, and City Guide has great recommendations globally, especially when you travel outside the United States because we're truly global. And Yelp is very good in the U.S., but they're not as global at all. Um, and so uh, we have a kind of small labs skunk works uh, that Dennis Crowley, our founder, leads. And we're always – there's good stuff coming over the next year. You're going to see kind of experiments about the next generation of things in augmented reality and gaming that are intelligent to where you're standing. And the game might change based on, you know, walking into a pizza place versus, you know, walking into a gym and things like that. So Dennis is very interested in that. So you're going to see us continue to innovate – and experiment, and we'll look for beta testers. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, I think more likely than our future is, you know, invent the next Snapchat or Instagram, it's much more likely that we'll invent new kind of user interface paradigms that are useful and then encourage our 150,000 app developers to implement some of them in their scaled communities. Do you think you have the ability to export those values out to those developers? I mean, that's the thing that you have a little bit of leverage now. You can say, hey, we're not we're not going to let you do this kind of tracking. Hey, we're not going to let you resell this kind of data. Is that yeah. something that you enforce? Yes. We have a bunch of privacy rules uh, that, that are just built into the system. Mm-hmm. We have an ethics committee and ethics training. Um, and so we think a lot about this. And I can give some examples. So, for instance, we signed the Never Again Tech Pledge, which is we don't think you know, digital data should be ever used to create a compilation or registry of religious belief mm-hmm. in the United States or anywhere. Um, like a Muslim registry was a hot topic at that time. And so we just ban, we just block all that sensitive information, things like LGBT locations, things like sensitive medical locations. We just don't let our developers see that. It's it's sort of hard-coded into the system. Now, we see it, but by policy, we just don't think that should be out in the world. And so that's those are we could talk for another hour yeah, about yeah. all the privacy safeguards and things. But and look, we're we're continually trying to get better. We audit our partners, but I would like to see all of our partners 
do a better job at onboarding screen disclosures. I think that's going to be a real place for both regulatory and self-governing um, push because I think consumers should be in control and data is a privilege and, and the industry has to get better there. Last question. When a Vergecast listener is listening to this, how should they think of Foursquare? And two, what comes next in this big conversation about location and privacy and data? I hope they now know that Foursquare <laughs> really is this platform. So it's the the most trusted, independent platform for understanding how people move through the real world. That's that's what's emblazoned on the wall in our offices, and that's what gets us up in the morning. And you know, you will see uh, us trying to spend time with uh, policymakers and explain the benefits of location, and and also our belief that privacy standards, the U.S. needs them, and there should be a law, and and it should be a smart one that ensures competition and innovation, but also protects users um, so they can trust this, uh, you know, their their apps, their favorite apps. And so um, I we want to be part of that conversation. We want to elevate that conversation. And um, we're happy to dig into the, the details, but that will maybe be the next podcast. Probably. Well, I'm always happy to talk to companies and CEOs that express their values. So thank you very much for coming by. Thank you for inviting us. That was Jeff Glick, the CEO of Foursquare. I suspect we'll have him back on as the sort of privacy regulation conversation heats up. We'll be back later this week with another regular Vergecast, and we're here every Tuesday with an interview episode and sometimes some emergency episodes as well. Let me know what you think. I'm at Reckless. Would love to hear from you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.